this morning. Thanks to Margaret for playing for us this morning. Thank you. Exodus chapter 24, we have here an account of confirming of the covenant between God and his people. And the blood of the covenant uh, being placed on the people and then that creating peace and fellowship. So Exodus chapter 24, let's hear from God's holy word as it is read in the presence of his people. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, And Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Amen. And if you would, go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we'll begin at verse 14 and read through verse 23. This is the Gospel of Luke's account 
of the Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 14. Once again, God's holy and inspired word. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It would be odd if there were a a sports team that put on their shirts or their their warm-up shirts or something, defense wins championships, and then uh, you would see in the game that they don't really put much effort into their defense, right? To kind of have that slogan over the, the team, you would think it would reflect the way that they play the game. It would be strange if you were to walk into a store and Kind of above the sign of the store or somewhere on the sign, it would say, we'll always greet you with a smile. And you go in and all of the employees kind of have furrowed brows and and a frown. And there's generally just kind of an unfriendly feeling about the place. Oftentimes, businesses, sports teams, groups of people have these slogans. And the the idea is you want to reflect what, what it says. And how do we reflect what we profess, what we confess about the Christian faith. Well, certainly, there are all kinds of opportunities in our lives to do so day by day. But to come to the Lord's table is really where we put into human action the fundamentals of the Christian faith and what we say we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to this table out of our needfulness. We are poor and needy sinners. Thus, we need to do something about it. It's not good enough to just sort of remain where we are. We need to seek salvation. We gather around the table of Jesus Christ because this is where salvation is found. There's no other place. There's no other place in the world other than in Jesus Christ where we can find salvation. We attach to this table a deeply spiritual significance. We see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, active in what we are doing and thus we we come to the table out of reverence and with great care and intentionality because we see the work of the holy spirit attached to what we do we show our submission to the word of god the word of god tells us to do this in remembrance of jesus christ until he comes again so we submit to the authority of the word of god many people in the world might find what we do silly or pointless, or a waste of time, and we find it to be none of those things. We do so because we believe God's word and we submit to its authority. We do this because we believe that God strengthens us for our pilgrimage, for our 
walk of faith, and that at the end of this road of faith, we shall receive eternal life because we walk each step by faith. So we are putting into physical action, we're putting into our lives the truths that we confess about the grossness of sin, how awful it is. We're putting into action the beauty of Jesus Christ, the the exclusivity of salvation that is found in him. We're confessing together the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is something true and real that happens when we observe communion. We're confessing the authority of God's word. We're confessing our ongoing need for grace. All of those fundamentals of the Christian faith we are pointing to and confessing together as we do this, hopefully before a watching world, that we may say together what God has said and declared we will do and we believe. The ideas that we'll think about today as we think about this passage from the Gospel of Luke, participation and sufficiency. Participating in the work of Christ and Christ's work is sufficient to reconcile us to God and to grant us all that we need for salvation. First, the idea of participation. We see Jesus and his apostles observing uh, the Passover meal here. And so we have kind of the the clash of the ages here. Jesus is bringing old and new together and the old is giving way to the new. And Jesus links his own work and suffering with the Jewish Passover. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, when Hebrews observed the Passover meal, each household sacrificed a lamb. And they used both the blood of the lamb and the meat. Both of those were involved in the various rituals that they would do. The blood, of course, would be on placed on the doorpost. The meat would be consumed. We read in Exodus chapter 12, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. The eating of the lamb, the eating of the Passover lamb is a picture of taking into ourselves the benefits of the sacrifice. It's to participate in the work of the altar and the benefits that the altar gives. Jesus is then linking his work, what he is about to do. He stands on the precipice of suffering on the cross. He links it with the Passover. He's saying, there is a benefit that I am going to give to my people. There is something that I am going to accomplish that will be shared with others. He will do something that comes as a benefit for others. Now, when the priests were sacrificing the Passover lamb, they would have to be consecrated to their priestly work. The priests would have to abstain from certain things. They would go through uh, cleansing rituals and then they would abstain from common things till their work was done. One of the mysteries, one of the great profound mysteries of the cross is that Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. So he is called our Passover, but he is both priest and and sacrifice himself. Jesus says he will not eat, he will not drink wine again until his work is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, at this time, when someone was put through times of great suffering, people would often offer them wine, sort of aid in, uh, in their suffering, to get through their suffering. But sometimes people would refuse that wine. They would say, no, what is, what is happening to me 
is a just judgment of God. Thus, I don't want to interfere with God's judgment upon me. Thus, I'm not going to take this thing that would comfort my body and my soul. I bear this and I take the full penalty of what is deserved. Jesus, one of the things we learn about his fasting from wine here, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. He is saying that this is a just judgment of God. But it is not just because Jesus has done anything that would merit punishment. Jesus, of course, has lived a sinless life. So this is a substitutionary work, just like in the Passover, where the lamb is sacrificed as a substitute for the sins of the people. It's a substitutionary work, but it is just. It is one of the great mysteries of the gospel, that Jesus, himself perfect, himself righteous, would die for those who are imperfect, would die for those who are unrighteous, would die for sinners. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would dare even to die for a good person. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus is saying this is a just work of God. Even though we look at it, we say, of course, Jesus deserves no punishment. Of course, Jesus does not deserve to go to the cross. But in the sovereign working of God and his bearing for sin, God is just in doing this. We also see that his fasting from wine and common things is part of his consecration. He is the great high priest. Thus, he will refrain from these things until the work is finished. What can we conclude from just these simple truths? Well, we can conclude that Jesus goes to the cross knowingly. He knows where he is going. What is about to happen is not going to surprise him. He goes knowingly and he goes willingly. He's not going against his will, but he is even joyfully submitting to the will of his father and obeying in submission and obedience. No matter what modern man may say about the story of Jesus, the end of his life was not a flurry of unforeseen or unfortunate events. He knew exactly what awaited him, the cross and his suffering. And he knew exactly for what reason that he might be our Passover lamb. One pastor puts it this way, Christ had hard travail upon the cross, yet he does not regret it, but thinks his sweat and blood well bestowed because he sees redemption brought forth to the world. Oh, infinite, amazing love of Christ, a love that passes knowledge that neither man nor angel can parallel. How we should be affected with this love. We look at the work of Christ and we say, oh, amazing, infinite, wonderful love of Jesus Christ that even goes beyond our ability to know and to comprehend. Jesus speaks about this fulfillment uh, as part of the work of the kingdom of God. This kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, it is a kingdom of redemption. Some people would say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a 
some, in some ways a prophet. He perhaps was a great moral example. But none of those things get to the heart, the primary reason of Jesus coming to this earth. Why did he come? He came to redeem. He came to set us right with God. He came to grant us communion and fellowship with God. More than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than an example, a savior. As that is what he primarily does. He goes knowingly, he goes willingly. As another pastor puts it, then let us love a bleeding savior. Many rejoice at Christ's suffering for them, but dream not of their suffering for him. As we reflect upon the suffering of the God-man, as we come together to remember and proclaim the glory of the one who suffered for us, if we say that we love him, if we say that we are devoted to him, how can we then go to our lives and make no sacrifices for him? How can we refuse to give up anything in our lives if we say that we love the Savior who gave up himself for us? That is a kingdom that's founded on redemption. And a kingdom founded upon such a redemption will be filled with citizens of love and devotion, eager and willing to do all for their king. We also see that Jesus and his work is, are sufficient. There is a sufficiency attached that we see all throughout uh, this passage shown to us in uh, here and, of course, elsewhere. Christ's sacrifice and work are sufficient to save once for all. The first way that we see this is in the non-bloody elements of the meal. They're eating the Passover, but Luke doesn't mention the lamb which is interesting. Of course, they are uh, observing the Passover meal and Jesus institutes the Last Supper afterwards. But there is no mention of the lamb because the focus, the attention is going to be on the work of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? He brings old and new together and that which was merely a copy, the blood of the lamb and the meat of the lamb gives way to that which is true and lasting and ultimate, The work of Christ, sufficient to save all sins, everywhere, of your life, uh, all, all, everything you've ever committed, Jesus and his work and his blood is sufficient to save. The book of Hebrews tells of this mystery, that there is no need for ongoing sacrifices, there is no need at the, the next Passover from this meal, there is no need for Jesus to give himself again which was, of course, that was the way of Old Covenant worship. These sacrifices were going to have to be performed again. But Jesus, his work is perfect and sufficient once for all. Hebrews chapter 9. Christ has entered not into the places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Elsewhere in Hebrews it says, Jesus has entered by means of his own blood. He enters into heaven to present his work before the Father. And the Father is pleased to accept that work on the behalf of all of those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Sufficient to 
pay for all the sins of the world. The elements of the Lord's Supper testify to this truth. When we gather around the table, there is no bodily blood at the table. There is no carnal flesh because Jesus has presented his work in heaven. If we still needed to produce flesh and blood and a sacrifice, we would not be assured that this work is sufficient once for all. But that brings us back to the idea of participation. Since the elements are non-bloody and non-carnal, it creates a a feeling of distance between us and and the benefits of Christ. There's some some gap there. You can imagine that in the Passover, there's a a feeling of closeness as you take the blood and you put it on the door and as you, you eat the flesh of the lamb that was sacrificed and you remember that this was sacrificed for me. So how do we bridge the gap that we feel uh, between ourselves and the work of Christ with these non-bloody elements? There's a, a, a spiritual participation. We participate how? By faith. Faith is what bridges that gap. We look to Jesus Christ. We trust in him. We trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And that brings those benefits to us. That is how we participate in the work of the cross. Thomas Watson says this. It is not gold in the mine that enriches. Right? There may be lots of gold in the world. But if it remains in the mine, it's not going to make anyone rich. He says, it is gold in In the hand that enriches. Just so the work of Jesus Christ is objectively accomplished. It is out there. It is being proclaimed to a dying world. But how is it that those benefits of Christ come to us? Watson says, faith is the hand that receives Christ's golden merits. It's out there. We grasp onto it. By faith. So take this treasure to yourself by faith. Drink the benefits of this sacrifice by faith. Faith is what brings Christ's work close to you. It's not our religiosity, it's not our own self produced righteousness, it's not anything external. It's the work of Christ which we appropriate by faith alone. Faith is a vote of confidence in the sufficiency of this substitutionary death of Christ. With what will you appear before the Lord? With your own half-cooked righteousness? Or will you appear before the Lord with the work of the God-man, finished at Calvary? There's an ancient uh, ministration that ministers were to share with the dying, someone who's on their deathbed. And it just wonderfully points out the, the sufficiency of the work of Christ It says this, that the minister was to say to the dying, do you believe that you cannot be saved but by the death of Christ? And the sick man answers, yes. And then the minister says, go then, while your soul lives in you, put all your confidence in this death alone. Place your trust in no other thing. Commit yourself completely to this death. Cover yourself completely with this alone. Throw yourself completely on this death. Wrap yourself completely in this death. To all of us today, I say the same thing. While your soul lives in you, put all of your confidence in the death of Jesus Christ alone. Look 
to the sufficiency of this death. Wrap yourself in this death. Nothing here depends upon ourselves. We stand in a long line of ruined sinners who trust in the work of this perfect one who reclaims us as his bride. And don't miss the warning embedded in this passage either. Jesus shares and institutes this meal, points to the sufficiency of his work. He, the old gives way to the new, the, the Passover, now to Christ, our Passover lamb, the, the bloody to the non-bloody, the participation by faith is a, a heavenly meal. Don't miss the warning either. As Jesus says, I have been appointed to go and die, but Judas will bear the responsibility for what he has done against me. From that, of course, we are reminded that Jesus was appointed to go and die. He was appointed to go to the cross. It was God's plan, and Jesus willfully and knowingly submits to it. But we will bear responsibility if we reject Christ. We will bear responsibility for that which we have done in rejection of the Savior. The book of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see the glory of the God-man. You see the sufficiency, the perfection of his work. You see the participation that we have offered to the world, the dying world by faith. How shall you, how shall I, how shall we escape if we were to neglect so great a salvation and so great a Savior? You read in Exodus 24, there is a a sense of peace, right? God, as the covenant is confirmed and the the 70 elders can go up and they they enjoy a, a measure of peace. But see how much more glorious is the picture given to us in Jesus Christ. The one who is himself the glorious one. The one who dwells, has dwelt forever in unending glory and majesty beyond our, our best thoughts of it. Jesus is the one who comes as the God-man to give us peace in God's presence. If that is true, if we are reconciled to God in such a glorious way, how can we bring our own unrighteous human strife and human division to this table? To be washed by the blood of the Lamb and to be set at peace with God. An outworking of that is that we are to be at peace with each other. Don't bring your human strife, your human bitterness, your human hatred, your human division to this table. Glory in the peace that God gives to you. And see the kind of peace that it is to create For all of us together, we eat from one loaf, we drink from one cup. May we live as if it is really true. We thank our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for work that is so perfect, so sufficient, in which we participate by faith. It gives us peace in God's presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to gather around the table now. Be with us and give us your grace as we seek to do this rightly in a way which honors you. In Christ's name, amen. If you would, uh, go.